Welcome to Podcast as Code, a show about the operation side of the software development lifecycle. I'm Mitchell Scott. And I'm Gabe Cook. Today, we're going to talk about business continuity and disaster recovery. But first, a couple of updates. You may have noticed this episode is coming out a week late, and that's <laughs> due to me being sick again last week. My voice was completely gone. We, we sat down and tried to record, and it, it was not good. Yeah, we hopped on a call, and it was just like, hey, oh, yeah, no, I don't think we should record. Yeah, it would have been nice there if we recorded earlier that. that day, because... You know, when you get sick and your voice sounds really, really low. So yeah, it probably would have sounded evening. cool. But then like by by the time we sat down to record, it, it was just completely gone. And it, it, gets, was, it was like a whisper. So not much worse in the not evening. Good. Yeah. Um, the other update I've got is between the last time we recorded and now pretty much all of my home infrastructure has changed, including my Kubernetes servers and all my networking equipment. I've been meaning to do... In fact, I think we talked about it in one of our first couple episodes, those like ultra small form factor PCs. I've been meaning to move things to those for my big Dell rack mount servers since then. Um, but, you know, migrations can be kind of painful. And it's one of those things where you do a bunch of prep work and then you kind of just have to pull the trigger and do the migration all at once because you don't want to have stuff running in multiple places for too long. It never fully goes as planned, which is great too. Yeah. So. So I finally pulled the trigger or over the course of like the last week, kind of at nighttime, I've been slowly moving stuff over and I got everything moved. I got a bunch of, man, it was, it was really obvious in some of my, some of my workloads that I got those set up when I was brand new to Kubernetes. Some stuff was named really strangely. There was a bunch of stuff that was just static manifests. So most everything's in Helm now. You talked me through getting Renovate set up, which was super cool. I'd been putting that off for a while too. So now I'm getting like GitHub PRs when my images are out of date and it's, it's really nice. My infrastructure's in like the best state it's ever been in, which is fun. Satisfying. You had a lot of those PRs at first too. Yeah. Like roll over to like or more. two pages. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, but now you're caught up. And then when I shut off the big Dell servers, I, it took away a lot of fan noise and I realized how loud my networking gear was in that, in that closet. And it, it was pretty old too. So I set up a new firewall with OpenSense and I got a, a fanless switch. So I've reduced the noise in there a little bit uh, less power draw too. I think my got a new battery for my network UPS. So I think my networking rack can run for between 45 minutes and an hour now on battery. So yeah, it's been a big, big week for my infrastructure over here for sure. Yeah. That's satisfying. It's a lot less power use too, so a lot of that migration will pay for itself after like a year or something. Yeah, I think right? I think the ROI on that is like between a year and a year and a half. Because I went from each one of those servers is using two hundred watts, and yeah. I'll, let me look real quick because I I put my new little ones on a power monitoring switch. They're each pulling thirteen watts right now, <laughs> and there's three of them, so. Four your old ones were like 35 or so. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Big power saving. Yeah. And yours might pay off sooner than mine. I feel like mine was about a year and a half, but yours may be even quicker because yeah, it might be 400 watts is a lot of power. It's a lot of power. It's a lot of power. Um, and kind of in the current event space, 
some other folks may be looking at infrastructure upgrades in the near future. The Raspberry Pi 5 has been announced. I don't think it's released yet, is it? I think it's pre-order um, still, right? Yeah, I don't think it's actually out yet, but it looks really solid. Um, much upgraded hardware from the 4. A little bit Yeah, October 2023, too. so sometime later this month. Yeah. Yeah, so if you are looking for a new Raspberry Pi, go go put a pre-order in if you can find somewhere that still has some stock. Honestly, yeah, this one it it go ahead. Honestly, I think the Raspberry Pi for like home infrastructure use is a little overrated. Um I do don't get me wrong, I think the Pies are really cool. I think there's a lot of fun use cases for them, but I've seen people buy multiple of them for like kubernetes clusters and i do feel like that like for what you get for your money these like small form factor pcs are probably more cost effective um definitely not as low power although i mean mine are sipping on 10 watts a piece right now so not that you know the new pies they have a 27 watt power supply so like they can get up there to the small form factor pc wattages if if they're under load they may idle way lower i don't i don't know i've never monitored one um, but you know, they are tiny and they do have a little, probably a little bit lower power consumption. So if you, if those are your constraints, totally solid choice, but I feel like as a default, they're kind of a little bit overrated. Yeah, I tend to agree, especially the Pi 5 has a lot of hardware upgrades. Like they have their own in-house silicon now, like their own processor, which is pretty cool. I'm sure, you know, they're able to integrate with that a lot better. And it has like official active cooling and things like that. But the price jumped up quite a bit too. So it might be nice to buy new, but Michelle and I got our micro form factor PCs used and it was about the same price. Yeah. And so, then, uh, you know, we threw more memory and disk uh, yeah. SSDs into them. But if you're looking at the Raspberry Pi 5, I mean, you're probably in for a hundred bucks or more by the time you buy SD card and power supply and the active cooler plus an optional case like you know yeah quite a bit but again it is new hardware so that's it is a brand new hardware which is nice um but yeah. it's definitely not and the 35 like machine that those started out as when they first came out that's true i mean this one it looks pretty promising though i mean they said it has like a two to three times speed improvement depending on what you're doing yeah. and like two times the the graphics performance gpu performance and they said also that it had increased like io bandwidth so i'm hoping they fixed that issue i've i think i've mentioned in this show before where like wi-fi and usb i think or maybe uh something like that all the, the pi, usb ports yeah i think until the pi 4 i think the pi 4 fixes oh. but i think until oh, okay. the pi 4 the Ethernet port was actually on the USB bus, so I think it was 100. That million. was it, Ethernet, not Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, so this one says increased I/O bandwidth over the four, so they did something else. Nice. Which cool. um, does it support PCIe? I feel like it supports at least some lanes of PCIe, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it'll be. Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. Pi Five lets you connect to high bandwidth PCI Express accessory like network cards, external storage, and even graphics. Can you cards. do NVMe? That'd be cool. That would be really cool. But either way, that's that's a pretty cool upgrade <laughs> over the four. Yeah, it's a it's a solid upgrade for sure. Um, I had a Pi Four and I liked it. I I ran like random 
like a VPN on it and stuff like that. Um, sadly it, it died. Something power related died on it. And I tried different PSU, different power supplies and it, it never came back. So it unfortunately is, it's no longer with us. And I, I don't know. I may pick one up at some point, even though I, I ragged on them a little bit, but I do, I do think they're cool. I just think that bang for buck, you can probably do better with some used x86 boxes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they definitely have their use cases. Like uh, I have a Pi, mine's pretty old. It's a Pi 3B and I yeah. use it hooked up to a 3D printer to give like smart software for that. And I could, it just uses a mini USB port. So I, I could hook that up in my Kubernetes cluster. I've actually considered it, but it's kind of nice to have something just fully separate that yeah, I don't touch often. Sure. I've also considered using a Raspberry Pi because um, I have an ad block DNS and you know, my whole network at home and I've considered deploying a second one to a pie so that if I bring down Kubernetes, I can switch yeah. over to that. Uh, so it's useful that's, for stuff like that. Yeah. That's kind of the use case I would have for one. If I picked one up would be maybe yeah, like a DNS or DHCP server. That's not in the cluster. So I can do cluster maintenance and not take down like exactly all Everything. the smart TVs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it does actually look like you can boot off an NVMe. So if you have that's a, awesome. Yeah, yeah, there's a certain PCI adapter that you can put an NVMe on and then it can use that for storage. That would be nice because the SD card is one of my main issues with Raspberry Pis. Yeah, the SD card's definitely a weak point and, and a yeah. common failure point. Yeah. I sure. like having a real drive on my hardware. Yeah. No, that'd be that'd be cool, but then you know, dollar amount keeps going up as you keep doing cool stuff. So, you know pros and cons yep definitely definitely solid hardware and especially if you're wanting to play with arm stuff like that's awesome it's pretty powerful arm chip by the looks of it um something that could be even more interesting is maybe in a year or so when they release a compute module 5 because i know mm -hmm. there's a lot of cool projects that use a compute module 4 and those have been almost impossible to find due to some of the like covid supply constraints so if they're doing some stuff in-house and have a little more supply for those um, for their like system on a chip and they can get a compute module five out the door, then maybe some, some of our, some of those cool hardware projects that need the compute modules can actually start like shipping units again. Not only that, but have upgraded hardware, although that would also affect their price. So do you think yeah. that the, uh, the Pi four like availability is the reason they decided to make their own chip? Part of me wonders but if that's I don't know, the main. It's getting a little bit old. Like the Pi Four has been out for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure it plays into it because I don't I don't remember who they used for the like the CPU package and stuff on the Pi Four, but like those kind of the the confluence of timing of that stuff getting really hard to find, and then a bunch of businesses coming off of three and five year leases or life cycles for these small form factor PCs kind of swamped eBay with like a hundred dollar. Intel boxes, right as Pi fours were getting to be unobtainium. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't I don't know. There's definitely wasn't a great time where... to buy any sort of computer, honestly. Because no, it was really bad. <laughs> In fact, I've I've heard from you know my previous job, I did a lot of IT work and like selling servers and setting up servers, like physical servers. And I heard that some some of my old clients had actually done cloud migrations instead of hardware refreshes because the lead times on like Dell or HP servers were so long that they couldn't wait. Oh, that hurts. 
because you know you can buy a cloud machine like spin up a cloud server in seconds to minutes whereas like you had you were looking at you know six to 12 month lead times for some of those server boxes so and a high bill to boot yeah and it's, and it's a capital expense for sure yeah yeah yeah, and stuff was expensive. Yeah, no, not getting any discounts when that's the like sales environment for sure. Mm-hmm. You ready to move on to our main topic? Today we're going to talk about uh, business continuity and disaster recovery. So, first of all, what is business continuity versus what is disaster recovery? Honestly, yeah. So they they are a little bit related. You typically talk about them in the same kind of conversations. I like to compare business continuity to something like RAID, which uh, is a you know redundant array of independent disks. It's pretty common in the data center space. Um, maybe even at home, if you've got like a mirrored set of drives, like a RAID one or something. Um, and what that lets you do is it lets you have a drive fail, and that storage is still available to you to use live. It's not backup. Uh, you will see... <laughs> You'll see people online saying that RAID is backup and you will see people immediately chime in and yell RAID is not backup. Yeah. And it is definitely not a backup. <laughs> it's kind of fun though to say that because to a yes, few of my friends troll, yeah. <laughs> that are very into RAID, they always get mad at me. <laughs> it's great. Right. It's good for certain things, right? Like it's, it's, it is good for drive failures. It is not good for like malware or deleting files or anything like that because you delete a file off a raid array it's gone as if it was a single disk it doesn't make a difference but you have a drive fail in a raid array and you get to continue like you get to a keep your data but b you get to keep serving that data Um, and that's kind of the business continuity is the ability to continue doing business in light of some failures and these are typically like expected failures as opposed to a disaster um, so stuff like drive failures, server hardware failures, like a power supply failure or something like that. Whereas uh disaster recovery is really more like we lost the building that all the stuff is in. Um, so it is truly like a disaster, like be that a natural disaster or, or something else like, uh, you know, your coolant line in the server room sprung a link and you, you blew a bunch of water all over your equipment. Or in a more cloud world which is this has happened like within the past year um an entire region could go down even for a short time um yeah yeah that was that's a good point yeah so the ability to continue doing business even if like if hardware fails or if vendors fail yes vendors being like your cloud your cloud vendors um so if business continuity is raid disaster recovery is like an offsite backup like something really terrible has happened but i know that my data is safe and I know how to bring that back and get things back online. So typically business continuity is keeping systems online. Like you won't see an outage for something disaster recovery. Like you will probably take an outage, but you will have your data and you will have a defined procedure to get back online in a certain amount of time. What about uh, things like degraded performance? Does that kind of balance the line here? Like if, one portion of a website is down is that more of a that i think yeah i think that'd fall more into business business okay yeah and that would probably be something like you've identified an acceptable criteria for degraded performance so like if you lose some hardware or a server in a region and you have a a replica of it running in another region but there's more latency or something like that yeah 
or your database replica somewhere else and failing over to that incurs a performance penalty, probably business continuity, but you'd identify that as a risk of like, you know, when we fail over to this, this is going to be the result and it's not ideal, but it's better than taking an outage. Something like that, probably. Okay. That makes sense. I guess I was thinking in a situation like that, you have less redundancy, less redundant service. So there's a chance that could become a disaster recovery situation, higher chance than normal. This is, you know, kind of more on the business side. So you definitely can speak to it all more than me. Um, So kind of in the like recovery efforts for this, I've always heard RTO and RPO. What do those stand for? Yeah, so RTO is going to be your recovery time objective. And that is like, how long can you be down? Can you be offline before you get systems back up and running? Um, That needs to include things like alert timing. So like how, what's your detection threshold? Are you, are you detecting stuff every minute, every five minutes, every hour identification time? So that's, you know, getting an engineer engaged, logged in, looking at stuff and then troubleshooting and then starting the restore. And that can take a while. And it kind of depends on what your restore process looks like, because if you've got a restore process that you've documented and it takes eight hours, you're going to spend a little bit of time troubleshooting to see if you need to break that glass and actually start that process. And that's, there's some back and forth there for sure. Because if, you know, you may spend a couple hours troubleshooting to try to avoid an eight hour restore. Um, If that restore process is fast, you may, you may pull that handle real quick because the, you know, the, the penalty for doing so is not too great. Um, So these are typically documented in like hours or days And it's going to depend on the business needs because the shorter that recovery time objective is generally the more expensive, like the more that's going to cost you kind of upfront, but also potentially in like licensing costs for software, for backup solutions, uh, engineer time Mm. exercises to like test this stuff every quarter or whatever your interval is. So you can kind of view business continuity and disaster recovery as insurance Um, and the premiums you pay are going to vastly increase with the, like with the RTO and RPO decreasing. Um, so RTO recovery time objective, RPO is recovery point objective. And that is the maximum duration of data that you can lose. Um, so like for us in general, our, RPO is about an hour. We take hourly backups of like all our databases and all our static assets. Our RPO is about an hour for most sites. Mm-hmm. And these are both things that you um, set in your like initial service agreements, right? Yeah. Yeah. These will be things that you would as a, as a vendor or as a purchaser from vendors, this would be kind of during the negotiation and quoting mm-hmm. phase. So the business should be defining these things and working with whoever their service provider is to figure out what the costs associated with them are. Cause like I said, it, you know, you can get these really small, you will pay an extreme amount of money to make that happen. So then we have the actual fault domains, um, which basically is what all has to fail. Yeah. So a, a fault domain is kind of what you're identifying is a thing that has to fail for you to either have a service outage or have some irrecoverable data loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not even irrecoverable data loss, but data loss that would cause you to break the glass on your disaster recovery tooling. Um, and this is like data loss that basically 
breaks your raid honestly that becomes disaster yeah, it's recovery a thing that, right so if you're talking about physical infrastructure you like is your fault domain a drive like can you tolerate a drive failure mm. how about a server failure like that entire server dies how about if the data center the server's in goes down or like the data center's multiple servers are in goes down um, and in the cloud environment that's like a zone right yeah um, what a, so moving to cloud environments, what about a region? So you can handle a zonal failure. What about a regional failure? Can you handle that or, <laughs> or no? Um, <laughs> that's what, what if you have an entire cloud provider oh have God. a problem and that's at first glance, that seems ridiculous because the cloud architectures are like, you know, you have availability zones and regions, availability zones are expected to have problems. That's why you have things in like three AZs. But there have been regional issues in the cloud providers. I, I remember specifically an AWS one that was with storage. Like they they had storage issues across an entire region and things weren't as decoupled as as they should have been. And then like entire cloud provider, well, that's impossible. There's a bunch of redundancies. <laughs> well, and also an entire region, Google Cloud had a data center get flooded, right? In Europe within the past year. Yeah, they had a flood that caused the batteries to catch on fire. I yeah, think. so, <laughs> so it, they lost power for an entire region. It yeah. can happen, but you're right. An entire cloud provider. To be fair, there are I have heard of workloads that are cross cloud. So I mean, it, it is something that people plan for, but that's right. And like highly this, this unlikely. Is like what we said, though, it it is well, it's more likely than you think. Um, certain AWS services only run in US East One. So like maybe mm. your workloads are up. But like I, all of I am goes through US East One. True. Yeah. So AWS has had issues where US East One goes down, and like stuff that shouldn't be affected because it's running somewhere else depends on services that only run in US East One. So there are some situations where an entire cloud provider, yes, actually... that's extremely unlikely. And would I would I advise someone to be multi-cloud for this reason? Probably not. It depends on the like. <laughs> You know, if it's if it's life critical, maybe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, if you have a ridiculous amount of money to put towards hosting and it's extremely critical, then that would be very interesting to try. And multi-cloud was a thing people, you know, people pushed for for a long time. It's just it's it's very hard to do. There's no easy way to do it because even you look at a tool like Terraform that's like cloud agnostic kind of you're still writing all that stuff twice. You're still writing modules twice yeah it's nothing is that portable yeah i mean at the end of the day if your workloads are in kubernetes and you can get a kubernetes cluster up and running in any cloud sure you can redeploy those workloads but like yeah still a lot of work a lot of cost too definitely so usually you choose like you set a line and say right like we will plan for like drive failure of course or server failure yep. i i also think it's a kind of at least you know, in my opinion, kind of a given. Um, but then like data center, you know, maybe not important for this app. Is that kind of how you approach this? Yeah. So like for you agree any, upon for where the acceptable any business. Yeah. For basically any business, if you can't handle a drive or a server, it's like slash VM failure, you're not taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's fine for them. But like for, for me, the level of like crossing over from, acceptable to let's think about how much this costs is at the like data center level or zone level if there's any workload that's business critical it should tolerate a zone failure in my mind mm. like 
those those are expected to go down occasionally. Like that's just kind of the nature of it. If you want something to have like a, you know, three nines or better four nines SLA, it has to be multi-zone mm-hmm. regional failures. It's a lot less off, a lot less common. The one thing yeah. I will say with all of these is when I'm talking about failures, I'm assuming you are offsiding the data, like offsite, offsite. Like if you're, if your data backup is in region, in my opinion, that is not offsiting and you're doing backups wrong. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's the rule of threes. Yeah. Like it's a three, two, one backups yeah. strategy. Um, and it's, you know, three copies of the data on two different mediums in one of those locations needs to be far away from you. Yes. Ideally in a fully different like deployment strategy. Like honestly, if right. you and preferably your- cold, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want malware or, or crypto locking nonsense to take out all of your hot storage and then you happily replicate that offsite and, and destroy a copy of something you want, you want that offsite storage to be a little bit cold. Yeah. I mean, that happens like people that have an external drive plugged in their PC and they back up to it. Yeah. Like if that drive's yeah. plugged in and you get some ransomware, that drive is gone just as much as the rest of your computer. So you're yeah. right. I, For I sure. did look, so, <laughs> you were so aggressive <laughs> when you said, if you don't consider a driver server failure, like a fault domain that you're not taking it seriously, but I mean, I mean you're not. Like, I, I yeah. I, I, I think that's nothing in my home that can't tolerate a driver server failure. Yeah. Me too. Except my, uh, my raspberry Pi printer thing. And that's fine. Um, yeah, but that's like a hobby, right? Like that's, you're not, yeah. it's not business critical. That's what I'm saying. Like if there's some, if your business depends on like, if your business can't tolerate a driver server failure, I mean, what, do you, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's how you see outages all the time. And you end up, exhausted trying to and fix those things are constantly. easy things those are easy things to to account for yes especially when you compare to the cost of like losing four hours of business mm-hmm. you know like let's you know an expensive uh, my prices may be a little old but like back in the day when i was slinging hardware an expensive like a nice rack mount server was 13 grand populated with like a raid array and decent amount of storage yeah so, that, so like, but you then would need like two of those to yeah, solve for the sure. server. Yeah. yeah but you, I, I'm assuming you already have the one. So ah, like the cost of, right. of having some redundancy is, is like 13 to $15,000. <laughs> so I consider that a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you're not making, you're not, you know, I'm not a business producing income through that device. Right. Yeah. Like your home stuff is not that expensive. True. Yeah. So, well, and, and you're but, right. But like there is a cost breakdown to do, right? So yeah. if you can tolerate, you know, how long, okay, a server fails, how long does it take you to replace it? You can't go to Best Buy and buy one, mm-hmm. right? You've got no. to wait on shipping equipment. and yeah. Now there is professional services like warranty services you can buy with these enterprise servers that they will courier you a drive or a power supply in four hours. That may be fine. But what if, you know, what if the failure is worse than that? Well, even depends, then, just right? for your like own how long sanity, does it take your business to lose $13,000. Well, also, if it fails near the end of the day and they have to take four hours to courier that to you, then how late are you going to be staying up migrating servers? Like, I, would... I have met a courier at a bank at 3 a.m. to do just that. Yeah. See, I would plan for this so that <laughs> I can rest easy at night. But you're right, because then that bank is paying me, a third party contractor, 
Yes. Like, you know, whatever, whatever our IT rate is to, to go do that work in the middle of the night. And like, and they had redundancy or like they, they tolerated that failure. There was no outage, but they were then in a degraded state. And for them as a financial institution, even being in a degraded state for a minute longer than absolutely necessary was, was, was super undesirable. Yeah. Not a good So situation. they were willing to pay to, to get the redundancy back because then they no longer had any fault tolerance. Mm-hmm. So one more failure, they were offline or, you know, exactly. some system was offline that was, that was mission critical to them. So we're already kind of talking about the costs of, you know, the, cheaper side but less redundancy and then the the more expensive side so like what are some examples of like the cheaper versus the pricier side yeah so i mean on the cheaper side you're looking at we take a backup once a day and we ship that off site it could be as it could be i mean we've had i've had it clients that they literally are replicating stuff to an external drive and the it director takes it home every night and he has another drive at home and he swaps it out so that at any given time, like he has an offsite offline copy of the data. Oh, that's pretty cool. Actually. Super cheap. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's super cheap, but like not super automated. He has to remember to rotate those discs, those drives. Yeah. Um, so that's like the super cheap side is you, you back up your data like once a day is fine for you. You ship that offsite. Um, you, maybe you have a couple servers running. You have some redundancy. Maybe you don't have a two servers. Maybe you, can only tolerate a drive failure. So you have like a raid mirror set up. Cool. That's fine. And then on the high end, and then obviously there's a million steps in between on the super high end, which is super expensive. You've got a hot standby. Actually real quick. Let me define what I'm talking about here. So we have concept of a cold standby, which is a system that is cold. It is offline. If you need to fail over to it, you have to power it up and restore content into it to get it online. That is a cold standby system there's also the, like a warm standby which is that system is the data running will be up to date right but it you may have to do some stuff to get it running it's not automatic so okay. it's warm it's not hot um so it's running it's provisioned at least mm-hmm. and it's got some level of current data yeah it's ready so not a, not as it's the in-between right and then you yeah. have hot which is like it's a full replica it's already on it may even be getting traffic already. Like it's a, you know, like highly available system. Mm-hmm. So super expensive because for that hot system, it's running. So compute is spinning. Your AWS bill is like the clock's running all the You're time. You're always paying double no matter what. Yeah, exactly. So super expensive, hot standby in another cloud vendor with something like continuous data protection and continuous data protection is a really cool technology and multiple vendors provide this. It's expensive to license generally because it's cool. Um, And what it is, is basically it's synchronized storage replication. So as writes happen in your storage system, those writes are getting streamed out to another storage system somewhere else. Oh man, that's going to also be pricey on like the network costs. Yeah, it's a lot of throughput. Data egress isn't cheap in cloud. That's one of the steeper costs that I always see in cloud. That's easy to forget about kind of like raid. It's not really a backup. So you're, it's another set of storage you have to pay for. That is not really a backup. That again, if something like a file gets deleted, it's gone over there too. Right. That's streamed in real time to the system. Exactly. Um, But what that means is at any given time, your hot standby has a full copy of the data down to like the last IO block that changed. So there's no restore time. Your R your recovery point objective, like your RPO is about zero. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And does it usually automatically kick over if something's wrong? Generally, like yeah, I yeah. think that's, I don't know if that's a part of continuous data protection, but if you've spent the money for this system, this mythical system that we're just. Yeah, sorry. I just mean like a hot standby. You would do, would you want a yeah, hot standby want to, be to be automated? Automatic. Yeah, I, th- I would think so. Yeah. Otherwise you're, you're paying to have something super available that requires <laughs> a slow human to go. Requires to you to wake up at 4 a.m. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're, I think in building, in architecting such a system, you're architecting the like slow human response times out of the, out of the chain. And then obviously there's, there's a lot of steps in between and like something that expensive. I've never personally seen something like that be built. I have pitched it to people and I've never super like in depth quoted one, but I ballparked it for, for a couple clients and I've had no one bite on it because as you have these conversations with people, they're like, Oh yeah, we can never be down. We have to have stuff back up within an hour and we need minutely, um, like we can't lose more than a minute of data. And you say, okay, I'll but quote you that. Then you give and the you bill. tell them how many millions of dollars a year it'll cost. And yeah. they say, actually, we could be down like a week. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those, un- unlike insurance, right? So like with, with like house insurance, if something's unlikely, you pay less to insure against it, right? In this in case, it's more kind of, in this case, based on how you respond. Something is, or yeah, the more unlikely something is, the more you pay to insure against it. Yeah. Because like just the scope of it gets so big. Like you can plan for a cloud wide like a cloud vendor wide outage. Like, you know, someday you will you will have the option to plan against the planet Earth being destroyed, but your company's still running. Oh. But like I'm sure that data replication you know. will be expensive though. Yeah, that will not be cheap. <laughs> so, you know, you can you can plan for all this sort of thing. That's why you need to decide at the business level what is honestly like what's the acceptable RTO and RPO because that drives all these conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, how long can you be down and how much data can you lose? What's acceptable to the business? And then here's what it'll cost to, to build a system that meets your business criteria. This stuff can change over time too. You know, like you build, you build a company in your garage, you'd be down for forever and like no one will care except you that company becomes apple and then that it's a lot different right like yeah so it, yeah, it pays to it pays to reevaluate these every so often these should be a part of any business's standard like it operating procedures it should be in vendor agreements especially managed service agreements like these should be well-defined RTO, RPO and SLA, which is kind of related. And we kind of covered SLA more on our outage discussion. Um, but these things all drive the SLA as well. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason that we have reached the decision we've reached in our company about like, you know, we're doing about hourly backups of our databases and we're not running multi-region at this point. Mm-hmm. Certainly not multi-cloud. Um, because like we, we we run a lot of stuff in GCP. GCP's SLA to us as as a consumer of them is so high for a region that that's an acceptable it's acceptable to us. That's what I was we about to mention. To architect more uptime in than GCP's willing to give us. Yeah, I was about to mention that. That's one thing that I like about like cloud managed hosting that they have an SLA and you know they host so many other businesses um so their sla is probably in most cases a lot higher than what i ever need to guarantee someone 
So right, yeah, and Google's SLA is either on par or better than what we're guaranteeing our customers. Exactly. Like at any given yeah. moment, the the choke point isn't going to be Google or Amazon or Cloudflare. Right. It's it's right. it's me, I guess. <laughs> Just because I'm not Google. Yeah. yeah, but you may you know if if you were a some sort of like business or or service that was you know, critical to the health and safety of humans. Yeah. Four nines may not be enough for you. Like I'm sure all the, you know, servers that talk to the international space station have very high availability because they've got to be running and communicate. Right. With and the even ISS. things like, like nine one one phone systems. Oh yeah. Any, any computing system related to hospitals and ambulance services and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Four nines is probably not enough. And it's not necessarily easy to buy more SLA from Google or Amazon, but you can architect around the things that cause their SLAs to be what they are. Mm-hmm. So if Google says a regional, like regional compute is four nines, if you have two regions, then you're definitely doing better than four nines. Yeah. And that brings to mind, I, I've mentioned chaos monkey in the past, which Netflix built, um, you know, Netflix hosts in AWS. Do they still use AWS? Do you know? I'm I think, not totally sure. I think last I heard they were still in AWS. Um, and I, you know, I, they're very tech heavy. And I think they wanted their SLA to be higher than what AWS guarantees. So not only, you know, do they host all over the world, but they also built a service that's like, okay, what if, you know, this AWS service goes down? And then what if this one goes down? And then they make sure their service keeps running. So they definitely have raised their SLA above what their vendors providing, which is yeah, and interesting. Then- Something else to think about as you plan out this this sort of thing is if you haven't tested your backup and restore process, yes, you don't have one. You don't have backups unless you've tested restoring them. I've I've had clients, I've had this happen to clients too. Like, oh, we've got tons of backups. Okay, go restore one. Yeah, let's watch. They can't. Mm. They can't. They don't have that data. So, like, you know, one is none, right? Um, make sure. Your backups, you know, I, I typically recommend about a semi-annual testing cadence for backups. Yeah. You don't need to do it every month or every quarter even, but twice a year, make sure that you can recover what you think you can in the amount of time you think it'll take. That will give you enough time to A, document the procedures and B, make sure those procedures haven't changed over the course of six months or so because tech changes relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. You don't want your backup procedures to have last been examined five years ago like you may have completely different hardware or a completely different cloud provider since five years ago yeah well and ideally i feel like it would be easy to like restoring a backup to make sure they're consistent doesn't sound like super exciting but if it's such a deterrent that restoring a backup is a big deal then that might mean even if you have the data, a disaster recovery situation is going to be a nightmare. Like, really, I feel restoring backups should be simple enough that testing a restore isn't even a big deal. Like, yeah, I can I can do that sure. to a dev environment or wherever. I can, no problem. Or else, yeah. you know, the disaster recovery is going to be just as hard as doing the test. So, yeah, yeah. Um, let's move and talk about some technical components to all of this. So we mentioned yeah. kind of the three, two, one backup methodology um what other like methodologies around backups should we be thinking about as we architect these kind of solutions yeah so there's a lot of levels of backups i mean i i think kind of the first 
that I always think to do, especially dealing with containers is, you know, like back up the database, back up the file system. But even above that, um, especially if you're hosting in the cloud or if you use VMs or something like that, you can do a, just a full disk image. And that's really nice to have because even if you lose the full server, you can restore from that image instead of having to set up a new server and only have a backup of the database. So yeah, disk back like full disk images are really nice to have. You mentioned a database backup and that mm-hmm. it's kind of another level, right? That's true. I guess it is. That's different than file system. You're right. Databases have a lot of internal file structure that is very dependent on the version they're on. So yeah, I guess that's kind of three tiers. Like we have the disk imaging, which is just take all the files on the file system, basically compress them into one file and throw it somewhere else. And then we have the actual like data file backup. Usually that's most useful for like images, image files that maybe users have uploaded or something. But for databases, it starts to become problematic to back up the disk files because first of all, like I mentioned, it's dependent on the version. So if you upgrade your database, you can't res- can't always restore an old backup without doing manual migrations and things. And also databases store a lot of what's called write ahead logs, basically. So if the database just dies out of nowhere, it doesn't corrupt the data. It can always step through and see what it was doing. And write ahead logs don't make much sense to back up. They can get very large and it, it just seems problematic. So the ideal solution for a database is dump it to like a SQL file um, or in, you know, like Postgres, they have the custom dump format and there's, you know, other formats like that. But that's the most ideal because it usually is can be restored to any version, sometimes can even be restored to different database vendors. Um, and it'll be as small as possible. Yeah. And so that's honestly, that's the best example of like an application aware backup that I can think of as well. So like a disk or file system backup, almost any tool can just kind of uninspiringly take that backup, right? Like, yeah, I'm just either going to snapshot the volume or I'm going to rsync all the files out of the place the, the a database. though, you have to have something that like if it's a Postgres database, that backup system has to talk Postgres. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So that's kind of an, another level of complexity, but it gets you, it gets you a, honestly a better backup. Another level of complexity. And I mean, I guess this is a given, but another possible failure point, you have to make sure the backup tool can authenticate into the database and has access to the tables that you need. And that's why we yeah. test backups. Um, but yeah, then you're not tied to like, we can only restore to Postgres, you know, 14 point whatever. Instead, it's yeah. just we have a SQL file. It doesn't matter. And then, I mean, there is there is the chance taking a like a disk snapshot and restoring it that would result in a corrupt database. It's a pretty yeah. small chance. It is I've pretty small because of once. those write ahead logs, but it totally can happen. I've had, it, had happen it happen one time. Wow. Yep. That is unfortunate. It was, he has a Postgres database for Tableau server and we restored a disk snapshot and the database, for whatever reason, we never fixed it. We just ended up going to another previous point in time. Mm. The database was not happy coming back up. I don't know if it got caught in the middle of a, it shouldn't, but like in the middle of a write or something, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but. That's interesting. So 
I just thought of something. You mentioned that you went to another point in time. So should your recovery point objective be longer than your backup interval? Because like if you have, you know, a single backup, which corrupted and you have to go back an extra point. Should that recovery point objective, the RPO, cover that? Or is that that is an edge case? And we mentioned probability. That is, that is a good Pretty question unlikely. in an edge case, but but potentially, right? Because you can you probably want your RPO and and it's a target, right? Your RPO is a target. True. Yeah, it's not um, necessarily guaranteed. But but if you want to if you want to guarantee it or get as closer to guaranteeing it, yeah, you probably should give yourself a few backups. backup intervals because yeah. you could have a failed backup mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And you could also, you know, a backup may fail and it may require engineer time to fix. And you want to make sure that's within your RPO as well. If, mm-hmm. if you can be. So I guess, yeah, it's better to under promise over deliver there, <laughs> but okay. Um, and then, there's also continuous data protection, which I, I think we've already covered. The only other thing I wondered is, is that usually something that you host like in your infrastructure or is that something that like AWS provides and you just configure it? I don't know cloud? if AWS provides it. Um, the solutions I've seen have been pretty specific to on-prem though. I'm sure they offer cloud stuff now too. And mm-hmm. it was like software that would run on the storage device or, oh, or close okay. to the storage device. So it just like hooks um, into the rights and it, ships the data yeah. out okay that's yep wild yeah it's super cool i i've actually i've never personally deployed it but i had seen some um like white papers on it and and some other folks at the company i worked for before had had mm-hmm. set some up and were playing with it it was still a new kind of a new thing at the time at least at least for me super cool super expensive <laughs> yeah, super overkill for a lot of scenarios but also i yeah. see why some people need it yep so then we have, uh, there's, there's a lot of different things on the tooling side of things. Um, and one that I, I think you and I really like <laughs> take advantage of our buckets are great for backups. Um, yeah, they are <laughs> buckets are kind of just managed storage, which behind the scenes, they work differently than like a standard file system. You talk to them yeah. via like an HTTP API instead of like mounting it to your server. But If you turn on buckets, all have settings for uh, keeping like version history for files, and then you can even set up lifecycle policies. You can very easily configure granular um, configuration for like if a file changes in this bucket, keep the old version for 90 days and also keep the last 10 old versions. So like if we have 11 historical versions and one's older than 90 days, then delete it. Otherwise, just keep the last 10. Why not? So buckets are great. Yeah, when you say bucket, we're talking like S3. Amazon S3, yeah. Azure Blob, Google Cloud Storage. Yeah, thanks. Um, yep. And it's important with buckets to realize, too, that those are generally not replicated anywhere. You can set up cross-region or, or cross-zone replication. So keep that in mind with like cloud services that you provision is a lot of times redundancy or backup are not accounted for. And you need to account for that yourself. Well, they usually have configuration for that though, right? Like when you deploy right. the yeah, bucket yeah. and you, you can, can, it costs more. I think you can, but I think you can set up like a regional, like inter-region replication. Typically cross region is kind of a separate thing you have to do. Oh, okay. That must be what I'm thinking of cross. So like, I think, easy. I think, yeah, I think you can set up like a regional bucket and it'll, have multiple copies in multiple az's but if you want 
if your you know if your fault domain needs to be bigger than a region, then you need to like do some cross region replication stuff. That's well, that's more in Google Cloud. In AWS, aren't S3 buckets global? You can't really specify. I think the maybe just the UI is global. Oh yeah, uh, no, the, duh, UI, you're right. The UI is global, but the like, you're right, you're right. URLs are regional. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, they're zonal. Yeah, you you pick it when you deploy the bucket. It's just the UI is global, yeah. which always throws me yeah. off. That's all it is. Which is confusing cool. because you could very you know as as a newcomer to AWS, you think, oh well, I didn't pick a I didn't pick a zone to to set up this bucket. Like I can see all of them, so they're all here all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite the case. There's some more work to go into that to get it in compliant with your policies. Yeah. Although again, I obviously backups are very important, um, but the SLA on an S3 bucket is most likely going to be higher than what you need in most scenarios. Um, yeah, the issue you're probably working against there is less of uptime and more of like data integrity. Because mm-hmm. well, I, I mean, even the SLA on that too. Yeah, but they've definitely lost a whole region of data before, or a whole AZ of data before. Oh, wow. So probably not region. I think it wasn't easy. There was a US East one outage and there was a small, but if it was you significant percent of users that did not get data back out of, I think it was actually EBS. Um, I think they lost, you know, 6% of, of volumes or something in us east one at one point that would make more sense ebs US east one like c it was a it was a zone not a full region okay that would make more sense so ebs i always would push for like pretty aggressively push for backups but buckets i don't know if i've ever heard of bucket data loss but maybe it has happened i don't know yeah anytime you're dealing with data i would i would never advocate anyone to do less than (laughs) oh three two one of course yeah might as well um, yeah. So, and it doesn't have to be in buckets. I think you're going to mention another solution we've used that we we would have we would have copied stuff out of buckets and put somewhere else. Yeah. So I was I was just getting onto that one. So I really love a backup tool called Borg. Um, and then there's a kind of a configuration file on top of it with another tool called Borgmatic. Uh, it's written in Python. I have used it for years. I think I first touched it in like 2016 or 2017. Um, and it's it's solid. It stores all of your files encrypted on another server somewhere, and they're all deduplicated. So if your data doesn't change very much, usually your backups are very small. Like if you haven't changed any data, the backup will just be a few kilobytes, which is super nice um listing you know listing those backups mounting them as a file system is doable restoring individual files or just restoring the whole backup is great um i've been using um a repository like a provider called borgbase i also looked into rsync.net they both look solid um and they both let you basically create a you know a backup repo and then you put in the url and backup to it i would still recommend using multiple so like keep a local board repo and then keep one in board base and that satisfies two of that three two one uh, but it's a great tool i also recently have been reading up on rustic quite a bit it's i, I personally love go and rustic is basically like a go version of borg um nice. there's a tool called valero which 
integrates pretty tightly with Kubernetes. Um, so that might be an improvement. Right now, a lot of my board configs are pretty manual. And I think Valero, you can just say, like, back up all these persistent volume claims. Yeah, I think you can you can set up backup jobs like by label, which is cool yeah, for so Kubernetes cool. workloads. And um, um, BorgBase supports Valero, so or Restic. So I'm planning oh, nice, to try that out. Nice. I might have an update yeah, eventually. I, I recently, as a result of some of my migration efforts, had cause <laughs> to uh, test my my Longhorn backups and restore process, and it it worked really smoothly too. So I was pretty happy with that. Yeah, Longhorn backups seem cool. I already kind of have my solution hammered out or else I would use them too, but I'm glad that it worked for you. Yeah, it worked really well. You had to test it in the moment. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also there's also backing up things like we use GitHub for work. And for us, our code repository is most of the business. Yeah. So if for any reason something happened to that, and it could be it could be malicious, it could be github detected some account weirdness and locked out our accounts which has happened um, not to yeah. us but like i've read about you know something weird triggers an automated security system and github blocks someone's account um, i think the situation right. i'm thinking of they were able to reach out and get it reopened but still that's scary yeah but like yeah for us the software we write is is core to the business so if it's core to your business you should be backing it up and so like backing up Git repos is a thing you should be doing as well if that's also important to you. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to do also, honestly. It's just yeah. file well, what, system. What you don't want to do is like, you know, your company gets locked out of GitHub or wherever your code is stored, and then you're panicking and calling all the developers like, okay, who has the latest <laughs> commits for these projects? Because like, it's probably, you probably have the code bases for everything distributed across 40 laptops, but getting that back together that would be horrible. a big effort yeah yeah that's no good you don't want to you don't want to be in that situation yeah one thing i've been doing personally that i i've actually really enjoyed um i don't know if we've ever mentioned giddy or gitty i guess because their logo is a little teacup um but it's like a self-hosted alternative it kind of uh, the ui looks pretty similar ish to github yeah, um, yeah. And I host one here at my house and I use GitHub very heavily. I have a lot of personal projects, uh, but I just thought, I don't know, I've spent a lot of time on these. Might as well keep it local. Um, so I've set up repository mirrors for all of my personal projects. Oh, nice. Yeah. So my smart. Yeah. My local Git instance will, I think it's just once a day, like sync the repositories. Um, but it's kind of cool to have that locally. I think that's an interesting. Yeah, I need to do that actually. I I do need to do that. I I also use GitHub for my personal stuff. And while I'm not doing development like you, like all my all my infrastructure as code lives there, and like I do have it on my laptop. But mm -hmm. it would it would be it would be smart to have some automation in place. Yeah. So one other thing that I just thought of, we probably should have mentioned in methodologies, an interesting approach to backing up like your actual services this doesn't cover data at all but you mentioned terraform earlier that kind of is a backup of what's running in your cloud environment not like what's in it but like what you have deployed and so as you know we've been moving into GitOps, we kind of have a similar thing in kubernetes like the data restoration would be a little harder uh, because i have all my data in board base but i could reset all of my kubernetes nodes at home 
reinstall an OS, reinstall Kubernetes and point them at my GitOps repository. And it would just automatically deploy every app I host here. Like I said, I'd have to restore data, but that's, it's pretty cool that GitOps gives you this sort of backup capability of the services and configurations. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, That definitely goes into like mainly the RTO part of cutting down on that recovery time because you have a lot of like all the configuration is backed up and you can just point a new environment at it and it will start configuring itself to be like it needs to be without much more work. Yeah. Then I just Uh, have to go in and the data recovery stuff. That's always going to, we haven't automated much of that because it's, we we could restore it in the acceptable time frame that we have set. Again, where um, do you draw the line on what's exactly? And yeah. every every business and even you know every person for personal stuff has to has to evaluate that for themselves. Of like, this is the amount of like time it's worth spending now to mm-hmm. cover some some potential like bad thing happening. But yeah, having all the infrastructure as code in a place where you can just target a new cluster at it and it just all your apps just start configuring and, and loading up like it's awesome honestly it makes me kind of want to delete my kubernetes cluster and see how hard it is actually okay so i did that one time um i definitely did that like six months ago uh i originally had a single kubernetes node it was actually probably about a year ago i i only had a single kubernetes node here and i used k3s i configured it as one like control plane and one worker node just on one device. And then I eventually bought another server that I wanted to join to the cluster. And they have a command that converts the existing data set to high availability. I don't remember now what went wrong, but it was totally my fault. I did something wrong and I, <laughs> I just reset the cluster state. Everything was gone, but I still had the data itself, like the PVCs. Um, but yeah, the recovery basically looked like that. I pointed it at my GitOps repo, recreated the PVCs with the existing like volumes directories, and then everything spun back up. It did take a night, but it wasn't the same as yeah. if I had like RMRF'd my server back when I just exclusively used Docker or before that when I just had a PHP server hosting a bunch of PHP apps. So yeah, well, that's that's a good point is like people can be the cause of disasters. Oh, they can. Uh, humans are often the cause of of all kinds of problems yeah upgrades can be a little scary sometimes <laughs> yeah but yeah so that was an interesting recovery that made me really happy that i used GitOps. yeah that's a super good example yeah all right thanks for listening our website is podcast as code dot show If you would like to suggest topics for us to cover or have feedback on topics we have covered, send us an email. Our address is contact at podcastascode.show, or you can hit us up in our Discord. Join us in a fortnight to discuss securing Kubernetes with network policies. And more. Thanks for listening. See you in the next one.